0: July 1st, the day that medical marijuana becomes legal in the state of Minnesota. We're going to talk with Dr. John Hallberg about that and also what's in a new meta-study, as John puts it, in the Journal of the American Medical Association about just how effective medical marijuana is. That is our topic, this time on Hallberg's Picture of Health. Dr. John Hallberg is back with me now the Journal of the American Medical Association, you've brought it in with you, and you say the fact that they've taken so much room in this prestigious journal is
1: in and of itself kind of extraordinary dealing with medical marijuana, right? Oh, it's really interesting. So there's a a really important sort of headline-grabbing study that's in the research section. That's the first section. There's an editorial that accompanies that. There's also a clinical review, which basically kind of walks us through a case of a patient, a fictitious patient, but who has a certain condition and, you know, looking at medical marijuana as something that can be used to help that person. And then the very end of the journal has this last page that's a patient education page. We can either copy it off or go online and print it off for patients. Uh So, yes, having four different things about one topic is really unusual for JAMA.
0: Now, the headlines on this as they appeared as this came out in different places, I saw words like scant evidence, unproven
1: effects of medical marijuana. That's the headline from this. Is that (laughs) fair? It's pretty fair. You know, the actual title the article is Cannabinoids for Medical Use, a Systemic Review, and Meta-Analysis. Okay. So meta-analysis means that you're taking a look at studies that have already been done. So this is not actually a study. This isn't like, you know, looking over a period of time at people, a it's randomized It's a study of tablet. studies. It's a study of studies. So there's oh. a fair amount of power yeah. in that. And I was very surprised the authors, British authors, they found something like 23,000 <laughs> different studies. Now,
0: wait a minute. All we've been hearing is there's no evidence. You and I have talked about this. Right. There's no medical Lack of evidence. Research lack of research you're right. telling me what 23,000 So uh, so where is
1: this being done ah uh, but this is interesting so you yeah. take those 23,000 titles and abstracts they started whittling things out they started excluding a bunch right off the top some of them were junky oh, most of them were junky i mean okay. then they, they kind of they go pretty quickly from 23,000 something down to 505 they eliminate a bunch of other okay. things then they're left with about 79 randomized controlled trials so these are the gold standards. sort right. of Studies and so, you know, and what if, do they find? Those yeah, trials—that's the way they would do any kind of new pill, right? For the FDA to sort of give its blessing with a new medication, you yeah. have to have randomized, randomized control, control trial. trials. Exactly, the gold standard. You can't just sort of allow a new drug to sort of enter the marketplace without having right. been studied really, really carefully. Hey, I took it and it seemed to work. <laughs> you can't, right? But that's the problem. <laughs> I mean, that's the story though that's going before legislators. You know, is yeah. that you're having people with like, hey, this worked My kid for meets me. This, right? Yeah. And then we call that an N of one. You know, the lowercase letter yeah, N right. equals one. You know, an N of one. It's mm-hmm. tough to make policy based on that. And yet, I mean, how do you say no to somebody who's had great success with Something, but we've all, all right. had stories of. But they you know, say something. the plural of anecdote is not data, right? Yeah, right, right. So when you, at the end of the day, when they look at all of these studies, the things that we sort of hang our hat on are not. I mean, there's not much of a hook there. Yeah. And so they found that there was okay. moderate quality evidence, not excellent quality, not strong yeah. quality, but moderate quality evidence to support the use of cannabinoids for the treatment of chronic pain and spasticity. And spasticity is sort of muscle spasms, especially with conditions like multiple sclerosis. And then there was low quality evidence suggesting that these cannabinoids were associated with the improvements in nausea and vomiting because of chemotherapy and weight loss or weight gain in HIV patients, people with now, AIDS.
0: I'm holding here in my left hand yes. a list from the state of Minnesota yes. of
1: official
0: certified conditions for which medical marijuana is indicated, mm-hmm. right? And uh, one of them there is chronic wasting yep. or, or severe nausea for different conditions. Yep. Cachexia is the medical yeah. term for that. Yeah, that's right. So that's on there, but you're saying the
1: evidence is not good on that. There's some evidence. And you know, yeah. it's a good case where, I mean, this is true for any drug. We have a drug that's approved for a certain condition. Doesn't mean that it's going to work in everybody. Think okay. of antidepressants. Think of high yeah. blood pressure medications. Sure. How many times have we tried something in somebody and it doesn't work? That doesn't dissuade me or other providers in and of itself, but it's important to know. But you say then chronic
0: pain. It shows there's what did you call it? Not moderate, perfect. Uh, moderate. Yes, moderate evidence, quality evidence. A uh, moderate quality evidence. That's not listed <laughs> among these uh, no. uh, conditions. So That's
1: interesting. Yeah. Well, I uh, think that, I think that's so a What that's,
0: happened here when they formulated this policy. That is
1: a very clear omission in my mind. I mean, I don't know the backstory. I was not in any room where any conversations were had about what conditions would be approved. But I think that that would be a case of the floodgates opening right out of the chute. Oh, and really? I think that in this case, we really want to take a go slow approach and pick conditions for which there are not thousands of people or even tens of thousands of people, the way that chronic pain probably de- debilitates in a lot of people. But there is there is word on the street that in 2016, that might be added to the list. Really? Once yeah. this
0: gets up and running and we see how if there's a literal run on the uh-
1: yeah. Although, you know, yeah. I mean, you kind of wonder if there's going to be a run because I think we've all been sort of surprised by how few people have actually a registered. A few dozen. They're saying right. dozens. It's right. in the dozens, not right? Not hundreds, yeah. not thousands, not tens of thousands. So that's pretty that interesting. That means patients who are
0: asking to be certified. And let's go through that process, yeah, sure. even though we've talked about it and had reporting about it. The process is you're not going to go into your doctor and he's going to take out the prescription pad, he or she, and write you, you know, uh, Rx for a joint. <laughs> right. This Thank is not goodness. the way this works. Right? <laughs> Thank, goodness. Thank goodness. All right. <laughs> that goodness. would not be good medical policy. Oh, that like. would not be good medical All policy. Right. Yeah. So
1: how is it going to work? So it's twofold. So patients have to register themselves, yeah. and uh, they have to pay $200 to register. This is per year, my understanding. And that would go to the state. That's sort of a, a, right. a registration uh, that has to occur. If you're on medical assistance, probably Medicare I'm guessing as well, then that fee is reduced to $50. But insurance doesn't pay for this. This is, yeah. this is cash out of your pocket. Simultaneously to that process, that patient needs to find a provider, a clinician, who will certify that they have one of these nine conditions. And this is a little bit where the, you know, it's a little crux, a little irony that, and this may explain why there are fewer patients signing up than they initially thought. Most Minnesota physicians, and I can only speak to physicians because there was a survey done by the Minnesota Medical Association, right? and at least two-thirds of physicians in the state of Minnesota have no interest in signing up for the really. registry.
0: They're not even going
1: to certify that someone has a condition That's for right. which it is. And then I think part of that, quite honestly, is that- is, is a that, wait and see? Well, it's a wait and see. I also think it's a little lack of understanding. I mean, yeah. I think it's kind of a scary process. You know, we are being asked- and this has nothing to do with the Hippocratic Oath or the Florence Nightingale Oath or anything like that. But it's, you know, we, Minnesota, is in defiance of federal law. And I think that that, I mean, there's a lot of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts that go into healthcare and medicine. And I think right. that they're a little nervous about defying federal law. You don't want to get your ticket pulled. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, so if you you do sign up, what does that mean? I mean, right. are you excluded from a federal job because you agreed to sign up for this? I mean, I don't, I don't think we know that. No. I'm guessing not, but but you know, you just don't know what could come of that now. And then this is interesting: is that there is no, though the state will know who has signed up, patients don't, so they can't go to a database and say, "Okay, I'm having trouble. My pediatric neurologist won't do this for my kid with intractable seizures. I have to go." On my own, cold calling and and no, knocking on doors really? to try and find somebody that will, and that's not easy. But I can see why, because frankly, physicians and clinicians don't want to be known as one of these docs. Now, in Colorado and other states, maybe people do. You know, in California, right. I've heard about that. You know, the clinics are just opening up shop, taking advantage of the huge mm-hmm. demand, and probably making a lot of money in the process. But we're busy clinicians, and frankly, you know, we don't want to just take on people who simply want us because of this fact and right. you know, reestablishing care. And it's really not that far from doctor shopping in a way. And that just really makes us nervous.
0: You know, a friend of mine once got some pills that were in a little plastic, uh, a prescribed medicine in a plastic case. And the case was the perfect size for cigarettes. So then he was trying to give up smoking, but he put the cigarettes in there, and it still had the prescription label from the doctor, and it there said, take as directed. And so he <laughs> can point to this, look, the doctor said I should smoke these. So, But that is not what's happening here not at, uh, all. at all. All right. No. So Minnesota has, would you say, tighter controls than every other state in the country when it comes to this?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, we are the first state to basically say we have a medical marijuana law and- Our law is such that we're not getting, we're not prescribing, we're not giving joints, we're not giving actual marijuana. We're giving the two constituent chemicals or ingredients that are found within marijuana. And tell us what those are. Yeah, there's two THC. Many people know about that. That's the test that people often test positive for, for the presence of marijuana if it's a drug test. So you hear about THC all the time. And the other one is cannabinol. And, you know, depending on which Symptom you have in predominance, a pharmacist will sort of determine after a lengthy conversation with you and a review of what your conditions are, whether medications you're on how much THC and how much cannabinol. So it might be mostly THC and a little cannabinol or mostly cannabinol and a little THC or half and half. And one of those, a cannabinol,
0: my understanding is, is not intoxicating, does not make you high, and the THC does. Potentially
1: it does. Potentially. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that that's one of the things we're going to have to study is, okay, so if maybe 10% of people who are habitual marijuana users become addicted, is it possible if you're taking, you know, a pill form of this all the time that, you know, you're going to become addicted or at least certainly habituated and, and, yeah. and will you need to have increasing doses as time goes by? That's sort of the way it works with these medications. It's probably true. It's an unintended consequence here, perhaps. Perhaps. And, yeah. and this is really uh, uncharted waters to a large degree. So
0: then that will be dispensed in what, a pill or a vaporized, like when, yeah. right, that you yep. can inhale? There's like four
1: different ways you can get this and it's simply not going to be in a smokable form in a classic sense. And you're not getting actual intact marijuana leaves when you get your, mm-hmm. your uh, medication.
0: Take as directed. Now, how is this different from the drug approval process that
1: w- that we go through for any kind of pill? Right. So if the FDA is involved, and I think they know it's important to make the distinction between, let's say, a, a drug that a person needs a prescription for. Right, a prescription drugs. Things drug. like yeah. Tylenol and Ibuprofen at one time were, were prescription, prescription drugs. And then, they, you know, right. and Claritin and things like that, they eventually yep. became over-the-counter. But most new drugs start this process by you know, being prescribed. To be prescribed, to be approved by the FDA, you have to do these massive studies. Both, you know, you start in the lab and then you move to animals, then you move to humans, and then you look at, you know, thousands of patients and have to do a randomized controlled trial, the gold standard uh, study to show, and also to create your list of potential side effects and adverse reactions and things like that. In the case of medical marijuana, it's kind of... uh, you know, a free-for-all in the Come sense and get it. Come and get it. And, I mean, <laughs> it really I'm, is almost. Yeah. I mean. yeah. It's, and, you know, yeah. And you think, too, that marijuana has 400 different chemicals in it. That's not that much different than tobacco. Yeah. How are you ever going to know what's going on there? And I think that's one of the, the tricky things when you're studying this, too, is that, okay, so if you have a study where you studied marijuana, smokable marijuana- Yeah do the findings of that study extrapolate to people who are using the just the pills, that. right, yeah. just THC and cannabinoid, or vice versa, mm-hmm. you know? Because, yeah. they're, I mean, be so much more concentrated in a pill form. Smoking, you know, weed, grass, smoking marijuana itself may not give you the same effect either. So it's really hard to extrapolate one way or the other. Is it possible that through this process, so doctors are certifying patients, there is a
0: follow-up process. They're going to have to talk to patients and say, hey, how is that cannabinol or how is the THC working for your condition? In doing so, is a data set then assembled so we know it's not working at all for back pain. It is working for cachexia
1: or whatever. Right. So the I think there's two pieces here that are important to separate. And one is that so all patients who are involved, this is part of the registry process, They have to, the idea is that they have to have some kind of person who's going to take ownership of their primary care. So that could be a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, or a physician. So you have to have that. Now, we'll be talking in our clinic setting about everything that's going on in that person's life, not just this. So it'll come up if we have registered ourselves, if we've certified that a patient has conditions. There'll be casual conversation about that. I mean, this is part of what we do. Where I think that the the data part will come from is on the state side of things, probably getting information from the dispensaries. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm guessing that there's some pretty interesting study material here. And that, you know, the pharmacists will have the data, they'll know what a patient is getting, they'll know the conditions for which it's being, you know, uh, prescribed. And then that's where we'll get the information. And I mean, we need, we sorely need good information. And um, because that's been the big paradox that because marijuana is a schedule one drug, certified by the DEA as having no medical benefit and high abuse potential we can't really do studies so I think it's going to be places like Minnesota with really good people involved to try and you know figure out what can we prove some of this stuff
0: so it seems like there are some ironies or at least conundrums here in terms of what conditions are indicated versus what are allowed and also in the the need for data and research and the inability to be able to do that. And do you think as more states or even as Minnesota with its very clinical approach here to medical marijuana, do you think that'll begin to change so that we can get more data on when and how, it's, how useful it is? Yeah, I
1: mean, at least on some level, as much as you can, because I don't know that, you know, these are not Academic medical centers that are doing this. This is usually coming from, in our case, the the health department, but also commercial operators. Two commercial operators, and so how they're going to interact, how they're, you know, there's privacy issues. You know, how are we going to get that that data? I sure hope that we get some data because that's what we need, and I think that that's what's going to be needed to convince other states, to convince medical associations, to uh, convince clinicians, because at the end of the day, if we could prove that there's something in here that really does work. It right. really helps people who are suffering from nausea and vomiting due to chemotherapy, that have chronic pain due to whatever condition it is. And it's better than opiates, for example. It's better than the things we have now. My goodness, I think a lot of us would welcome that. You know, We'd welcome it to the table that there's something, another tool that we can add to the toolbox to help our patients. I think we're all for that. There's just so much baggage you know whether it's the federal government doesn't acknowledge it it's illegal there's the drug culture piece to it and then we don't have the data you know i think that that's quality data you know there's some data there's lots of studies out there but when you really get the quality you're not dealing with a lot so i think we need to to raise raise that for sure john thanks for talking about what data there is and that data
0: is in uh, jama the journal of the american medical association i appreciate it always my pleasure tom thank you